This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Pink House Foundation and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Anne Hallward, and I'm a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine. And this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today, we continue our series on depression in the workplace. Depression is the number one cause of disability in the United States and the world. And yet, we still really don't know how to have useful conversations about it. With me today is an old friend of mine who has struggled with depression on and off throughout the 28 years I have known her. She generously agreed to tell me more about what it's been like to live with depression and how it's impacted her at work and in relation to her coworkers. Lisa is a 54-year-old poet who lives in Barrie, Vermont with her cat, Timmy. She works for a publishing company. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Lisa. Hi, Anne. I'm very happy to be here. I want to start with how your relationship to depression began. How old were you the first time that you got depressed, and how did you even come to recognize that this was depression? Well, I I actually think I was depressed really in early childhood. I think I had some of the symptoms uh, way back, but the first time um, I really sought treatment for it was when I was around 16 or 17 years old. And um, it had gotten, uh, my schoolwork was suffering. Uh, I was having self-destructive thoughts and finally talked to a teacher about it. And uh, I didn't feel safe talking to my parents about it, uh, which turned out to be absolutely true because once they did hear about it, they wanted to just not know what was happening. But the teacher was was very receptive and very kind and um, uh, actually advised me to go talk to someone else, namely my pastor, who also was very helpful and very kind. So um, that turned out to be a very um, good route to take. I think so often a parent can feel like if their child is depressed, like it must be their failing. Like if they had somehow loved you better or been a better parent, that you would not be depressed. Right. I think my parents were also of a generation where people, you just didn't, you know, it wasn't normal to go to counseling. Um, I mean, now my parents, my niece has been in counseling and they were totally behind that and it was fine. And I think some of it was the time period and my parents' um, history that saw therapy as just, you know, oh my God, this is a really bad thing. Right now the joke is, if, if particularly in by coastal U.S., if you if you haven't been in therapy, you know what's wrong with you. Right, right. <laughs> so the culture has really changed. Yes, yes. Yeah, so, okay, so there you are. You're 16, 17 years old, and you're in therapy for the first time. At that point, did anyone think about this as a problem that required medicine, or was this purely thought of in terms of therapy? It was purely thought of in terms of therapy, and which is interesting to me um, because that actually, um, I saw a therapist when I was in college, I saw a therapist when I was in graduate school, and medication never came into the discussion. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure why, it certainly was not the age of Prozac yet, so um, it could just be that, or maybe they thought my symptoms weren't severe enough, I don't know. Um, but it wasn't until uh, much later that I actually was given medication. So striking to me talking to you, I hadn't realized how just in, you know, our short lives so much has changed. Because nowadays, a 16-year-old 
who was mm-hmm. having trouble concentrating and motivating to do anything would be offered an, an antidepressant as a matter of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it never, uh, it never came up, and I never really thought of it. Um, and again, it wasn't um, like you were saying with therapy. Now, you know, it's it's almost questioned if you haven't been in therapy. Um, and I think there's so many more people that take some kind of medication um, that it's just seen as the norm. Um, but when I was uh, first experiencing these things, it just wasn't. So what was your first experience of being depressed while being a worker, and what were the things you started noticing? The first um, experience was when, actually when I lived in uh, Washington, D.C., not long before we met, and um, I, was in a volunteer, I was in a full-time volunteer position at a crisis hotline, of all things, and um, this was probably the worst depression I've had in my life. I was, I wasn't eating, having trouble sleeping. Uh, I was having obsessive thoughts. I was hearing a voice in my head telling me to jump into the subway tracks. Um, it was just a very scary depression. And that was the first time I was actually put on medication, um, which, you know, saved the day. Um, and that was because I worked at a crisis center. I think the people around me were much more sympathetic to what was going on with me. So um, there were times when I would come into work and I would just start crying and crying and I had to go home. And I was, you know, allowed to do that. And then the medication I was given uh, in the first month, it made me very sleepy. So I would just... They had the hotline room had a couch and I would just go up there and sleep for an hour or so um, and they were fine with that. So that part was was luckily was pretty positive because I was in a pretty scary place. It sounds really scary, uh, Lisa, to be hearing voices, you know, urging you to hurt yourself like that. You know, when I knew you, I wasn't trained, but now I know enough to be really scared by that. Take that very seriously. Were you open with your colleagues? Like, was it known Lisa's depressed? She needs to take a nap. You know, we need. Like, was it a? Were you just really out about it? Um, well, I was to one of my coworkers, and it's sort of funny. He's one of my best friends, and he's one of the funniest people I know. And we were both. I remember one day we were up in the hotline room, and I said, "I said, I'm. You know, here's what I'm feeling, and I, it's terrible, and I just have to go home." And he put this very calm voice, like, and I said, but please don't tell anybody, just say I was sick or whatever. But I told him the part about the jumping in the subway. And I had barely left the room when he was, he ran downstairs and said, my God, my God, Lisa's going to kill herself. And so then this whole, they were all, um, I, by the time I got home, I had all these phone calls and they called my boyfriend at the time and really rallied around. So at first I tried to kind of keep it to myself, but I couldn't. So, so. actually, I see. So initially you think that he's going to protect your, your yes. confidence. <laughs> and he waits for like one second and then like screams it. Yeah, because he was scared to death too for you. Yes, yes. Yes. And so in re- retrospect, do you see that as an act of love? Yes, I do. I yes. do. And even at the time, I I I saw it that way because I knew him and... Um, but it was just funny because when I talked to him, he was so calm and like, Lisa, you know, fine. 
And then I think he was pretty hysterical when he ran down to the office. So I I laugh at it now, for sure. So, I mean, what happens next? So your whole workplace is scared for you. They're calling you. Now the cat is out of the bag, as it were. Like, was it hard to come back to work after that? I mean, did people treat you differently? How was that? No, again, it was surprisingly positive. And I I think... um, Again, part of it was working at a crisis hotline. So, I mean, I talked on the phone all the time to people who were suicidal. And so had everybody else in the office. And so I think there was just a sense of um, we just need to give her some space. And um, I still kept doing my job. I just wasn't there in quite the same way. Um, And fortunately, the medication, you know, kicked in fairly quickly and you know stabilized me so um but i yeah i think the only thing i would say about that that was at all negative is that i think it set me up to think that in any office environment you know you just tell people you tell them what's going on with you um and i kind of had to learn the hard way that you're not always going to get that sympathetic and supportive reaction so what happened the next time you, it sounds like you were at a new job and did tell and it didn't go so well. What happened? Uh, well, I was at this job with a nonprofit association and I actually worked there for 18 years. And um, initially, um, my boss actually talked about her herself dealing with depression. And so that prompted me to open up and it was not a secret that either one of us were, you know, was dealing with this. But many years later, I sort of rose in the ranks and I was a manager. Uh, I had a staff of five people and I was still on that model of like, you know, my boss was open about it and I should be open about it. And my feeling was, you know, it's important for your coworkers to kind of know what's going on with you, not because you want sympathy or special treatment, but just, you know, here's what's going on. So. I was going through a major medication overhaul that was really badly affecting me. I was coming in a little late sometimes or closing my door sometimes. And so I sent an email to my staff just telling them what was going on. And after I sent this email, the next day I came into my office and there was a three-page single-space memo taped to my computer screen basically telling me that they didn't think I was fit to do the job if this is what was going on with me and I should consider taking a leave of absence and they knew I hadn't told my boss yet and they said if you don't tell your boss today we're going to tell your boss and we're going to tell human resources and it was written in a very cold it wasn't like we're worried about you and we really you know want you to think about this it was just very cold you know wow we We just think you can't do this job. And I was really, really devastated. No kidding. So they really gave you an ultimatum and they threatened you. Yeah. It's interesting because when I first read the message, I immediately thought I had done something bad. And um, it was only a little later that I got angry about it. I did sit down with everybody and to talk about it. And I brought up the issue of there was a woman who worked in another division who had breast cancer. And everybody knew she had breast cancer. Everybody knew she was going to chemo and radiation. And, you know, everybody was supportive and whatnot. And I said, how is this different? And they said, well, it is different. 
and that really struck me because I that was the moment when I realized that people aren't seeing this as an illness they're seeing it as something that impairs you um, in such a way that you can't be trusted um, you know I'm sure chemotherapy and radiation to me are something that could impair you you come to work after a treatment and you know you're it's you may have a difficult time keeping up with things but to them that it wasn't the same it wasn't an illness it was um you know that i just could not be trusted to do my job well right because if you're going through chemotherapy and you come to work actually i you know someone going through chemotherapy is often on a medical leave of absence because mm-hmm. it's so brutal but you know right, they're they're, right. they're nauseous they're exhausted it would be really hard to function Mm-hmm. Um, and so here you are, you're ch- going through a change of medication and presumably similarly exhausted, having all manner of side effects, because many of these medicines do have side effects. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like you they related to as if it affected your moral character, like somehow you, you were less trustworthy as a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think um, it was also I was seen as sort of weak um, because I had to reveal this and because... Um, I needed, you know, help, even though, again, I felt like I was doing my job well. And I even told them, I said, if you if you feel that something's not getting done, I want you to come and talk to me. Um, I just felt like they, I mean, I hate to use this word, but it was sort of like, you know, you're crazy. You can't, you know, you're not somebody who can be, you know, trusted to accomplish the basic work that we, you know, almost like we don't know when you're going to just fall to pieces in front of us. Um, the painful irony of it to me, Lisa, seems that you actually had just done something enormously trustworthy by by disclosing and sort mm-hmm. of being very forthright. Um, and again, I was clear because one thing I didn't want, I didn't want to say it like, oh, poor me, and I want you to feel sorry for me, and I want you to do all my work for me. I was just, I was very clear that, again, this is a medical, I'm having this medical problem. I didn't say medical problem, but now I would have. Um, And I just want you to be aware if I'm in a little late, if I close my door, this is what's going on with me. Um, But they just responded so negatively. Um, And a lot of them were very young. They were in their early 20s. And I think some of it was... I just don't think they knew exactly how to, to deal with something like this. I find myself wondering two things, too. One is, you know, whether they were really scared by it and, and that it prompted their yes. reaction. Um, but the other, I wonder, is a sort of like herd mentality. You know, if, mm-hmm. if they all like got together, there's a way that a group together can have such terrible judgment in a way that an individual might not have responded. I don't know. I just I yeah. wonder about no, that. No, I think that's true. I I think it all happened in one afternoon. Like nobody really said, well, let's think about this and, you know, write this memo tomorrow. It was just, you know, we're going to write this now and get it off our chests. And I think if anybody had stopped to think, there might have been a different approach. Lisa, they have this term that they call presenteeism as opposed to absenteeism. Mm. And presenteeism means that somebody is showing up to work, but they are not on their game. You know, they're they're yeah. they're moving much slower. They can't concentrate. They're distracted. Their productivity, you know, goes way down, et cetera. And do you think you were being less effective or productive than you knew? And they had been, like, worrying about it? Like, 
and um, we're and we're angry that with you. Occurred to me, but um, and it may have been. I mean, sometimes it's really hard to to see yourself in in those terms. I think I was still. I felt I was still functioning pretty well. It's the only thing that happened was sometimes I wasn't in to work on time. But even then, it would be like maybe a half hour late, something like that. So it wasn't anything drastic. Um, and if I felt really bad, I took a sick day. And I tried to be very um, cognizant of if I felt there were deficits in my work performance. But it could be, you know, maybe there were things that were showing up. I feel, though, like because this um, memo came to me the day after I sent this email out, it just seemed like this sort of gut reaction to this message. Um, so, Lisa, so, what happened next? So you get back. You've got this message taped to your computer screen. What did you do next? Well, I did go to my boss because I knew I'd better do it before they did. And um, so there was a whole hoo-ha after that of, you know, HR being brought in and people talking to the staff and people talking to me. Um and it sort of was resolved, but I, and I'm not sure, it, it, it's something in my personality, I guess, but I was just, I was devastated by it. I mean, I don't think I ever really recovered from it, and I actually ended up leaving my job, um, and I told people it wasn't because of what had happened, but in reality, I think it was, because I just felt so rejected, I guess, that... I never really bounced back from it. It ended up leaving the job. It seems like such a betrayal. Yeah, that's what it felt like. And also, really, when you were already down, like, I'm imagining your depression did not get better. No, this certainly did not help, that's no. for sure. No. It did, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was a very, very bad time for me. Um, it sounds like it because you'd been there for 18 years. I knew you when you were working there, and I remember yes. how much you loved it. I did, and it was a wonderful job. Um, and it just I look back now, and I'm sort of mad at myself in a way for allowing that to kind of force me to, to leave um, or allowing the, those emotions to um, keep me from continuing in a job that, that I really liked. But I just I just had a really hard time coping with it. Um, and just felt like I couldn't, I just didn't know how to relate to these people anymore. Your colleagues responded to you as if your depression was a sign that you were no longer trustworthy or that it was a weakness. Mm -hmm. Did that gain some traction inside you? Like, did you find yourself feeling it as if it was more of a failing internally as well? Yes. Um, I, I mean, I did get angry about it later, but I think part of what made it so painful at first was because I did think, I did kind of agree with them, like, oh my God, I've, I've failed them. And um, it, it's something that I've, I think I've only come to terms with recently, um, very recently, which is trying to acknowledge to myself that depression is a medical uh, problem for some of us, it's a lifelong problem, and um, that I have to take care of myself. But then I, I think I still saw it as it was a weakness, it was a character flaw, 
Um, I couldn't cope. I was just somebody who wasn't strong enough to deal with life. Um, so yeah, I definitely have struggled then and and uh, now with with trying to get a sense of what what this really is for me and how I what I need to do to manage it. Lisa, as long as I've known you, I've known that you suffered with depression, but I've never really had the courage to ask you, what is it like for you when you are depressed? What is it like? Oh, gosh. Um, well, the thing is, I sort of have this range of depression. Um, where I've been at lately is just, it's hard for me to... I just feel like a lack, just a lack of energy and motivation so that um, trying to do, like part of why I wanted to telecommute was it's really hard for me to take a shower in the morning. It's just like getting up and doing that one thing. And so I just need the space where I can, you know, start work and maybe take a shower a little later. And um, it's really, it's, it's hard to describe. Um, I get migraine headaches too and I know sometimes when you try and describe it to somebody who's never had a migraine it's sort of hard to convey how severe the pain can be and I th and but yet it's when you're out of the migraine you're not feeling that pain anymore so it's like well it's hard for yourself to fi to figure out a way to describe it and I think with my depression um the particularly the severe episodes it's sort of hard to describe because it's just like falling into a black hole. I mean, you just... <sighs> you know, when the, the people I talk to describe just like senses of just utter bleakness or just yeah. total worthlessness. And I, I've actually, I mean, I've been suicidal in the past, but that actually hasn't always been a feature. But... Um, what like I remember one episode and I would just I woke up in the morning and I was like started crying because I wasn't dead it's like I wished I had died overnight and I just I wanted to be dead um I just didn't want to feel what I was feeling anymore um so I wasn't like actively suicidal but I certainly didn't want to live um and it's interesting too because I think there's there's also this sort of hierarchy and depression of how depressed are you? It's like, well, did you try to kill yourself? Have you been in the hospital? Have you, um, right? These measures of severity, right, right. But it's it's really you just feel like this total emptiness, and it's also it's like I think when you feel extreme physical pain, it's incredibly isolating because no, you don't feel like anyone can help you. There's nothing you can do to end the pain. And you're just so in yourself and people can say things to you and try to cheer you up. And it's like nothing because the pain is so severe that all you can focus on is the pain and wishing that it would go away and thinking of ways to make it go away. Um, I think actually that's what I would say is the most profound thing about severe depression is that on top of everything else, it just isolates you because you just, all you are is this pain and um, you're, it cuts you off from everybody. 
Sounds really awful. So it's like all you can see is the pain and it becomes mm-hmm. this, this barrier between you and other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you were, not that this really exists, but if you were kind of a, like a guidance counselor for young people who suffer with depression kind of going into the workplace, what would be advice you would give them about how open to be at work or how to even cope with depression um, at work? Yeah. Well, I would actually say to people to be cautious about what you tell and who you tell. Um, because I think like any other medical condition, you, you don't, you know, if you interview for a job, you don't have to tell them if you've got some sort of medical condition. You don't have to tell them if you suffer from depression. And um, if you do feel it's becoming an issue at work, at work, think carefully about who you do tell and how you approach it. Even though our culture has this kind of free and easy, everybody open up, everybody talk about what's going on. I think there is still a stigma in the workplace and you just have to tread carefully but I would also say to never forget this is a medical issue and that if you do need accommodations, if you do need help, you have every right to ask it and you have every right to, you know, have HR, you know, look at your situation and see if there's ways they need to accommodate you and just take that power. Um, so don't... So take control of it and recognize that this is an issue um, that's real and that if you need help, it's fine to ask for help with the caveat that you can't, you know, be careful of how much you tell and to whom you tell it. It's, it's nuanced. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I know I'm sort of saying contradictory things here, but... Um, no, no, it makes sense, Lisa. It does what you're saying. Lisa, thank you so much. It feels like an honor to talk to you um, about this. I always like to end with resources or, you know, something that someone can turn to um, if they've been listening and really been moved by what we've been talking about and wants to learn more, to, to look for support. Are there a couple of resources that have really made a difference for you that have helped you that you'd want to recommend? Um, sure, sure. There's um, a book that has really helped me a lot. Um, it's called Get It Done When You're Depressed by Julie Fast. And I found this book a really liberating because, A, it sort of talks about people like me who have have chronic depression or have had chronic, you know, episodes or chronic condition and then some acute episodes um, and sort of recognizing that this is something you're struggling with and you have to find ways to cope effectively. And it helps... Uh, it talks about how to do things, how to get things done, even in spite of feeling depressed. Um, and I found that to be a very um, helpful book. And it's, it's one I think about a lot um, and return to um, for encouragement. Is there anything, can you give us like a pearl from it that's really made a difference to you? Oh, gosh. I think the thing, like I said, that really made a difference was I think with my depression, it's been with me all my life, but I think I still think, oh, it's going to go away one day and I'm going to be this quote-unquote normal, happy person. And in reading this book, it kind of made me realize, no, this is something, it's sort of like diabetes or something, you know, this is a condition you need medication for, 
you need to make adjustments for um and not like it's a death sentence it's just like this is a condition and you have to find ways to effectively cope with it and that was a real eye-opener for me in reading that book was sort of saying you know this is something that's part of my life and I need to just find ways to to live my life as best I can um, even with this condition right thank you so much for that sure sure if you've been listening to this show and are concerned about someone that you love who has depression and who you fear may be suicidal, or if you struggle with those feelings yourself, please do reach out for help. Uh, there are lots of ways that you can find help, whether that's through turning to someone that you know that you love or through calling a suicide hotline here in Portland, Maine. That number is 774-HELP or 774-4357. If you want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio, or you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com, where you can listen to all of our previous shows, including the earlier ones in this series on working with depression. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. I'd also love it if you'd leave us a comment. I'd love to hear from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor.